You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Welcome to Hill City Church Online. I am Jake, the associate pastor here. I just want to welcome you. I'm a, I'm a pastor who oversees life groups and worship and production. And uh, we are in the almost the end of an eight-week series on the Beatitudes, on Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And last week, our friend and church planner, Scott Billings, he took us through Matthew 5, 8, which is blessed are the pure in heart. And this week, we are tackling the next verse, uh, Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peace makers. Now in our culture today, peace kind of feels like a foreign concept, doesn't it? Uh, peace is like a foreign word, something from another planet. Peace, what, what is that, right? We've never heard of it because we are living in truly the midst of a tumultuous time in our country, in our world. Uh, there is political division, there is racial division, religious division, uh, there's division among friends in households, among churches, and it doesn't feel like we're living in the United States of America, it feels like we're living in the divided states of America, doesn't it? And what's worse is it seems like there's even greater division and conflict sometimes within the church itself, uh, conflict has always been a problem in the church, even in the first century. First of all, between Jews and Gentiles, uh, division over Bible translations, division over politics. Entire churches have even split over things as silly as the color of the carpet, right? And so how do we have peace in the church? How do we overcome division? How do we handle conflict? You know, in the church, is it possible for a person on the left to sit with a person on the right? For a person to sit with someone who is blue when they are red? Can anti-vax sit with pro-vax? Can, can Broncos sit next to Vandals? Can Chevy sit next to Ford? Can a lover of Eugene Peterson's The Message sit with a KJV only? Is it possible? Is it possible for such people to congregate together or even be in a life group together? How can we have peace in the church. And unfortunately, the problem is not only out there in the culture, the problem is not only here in the church, the problem is with us, with our own selves. Uh, is there a conflict in your life right now? Is there a lack of peace between you and somebody else in your life right now? Now, don't raise your hand, first of all, because this is a video, but we all have conflict in our lives. And when there's a conflict in our lives, we often turn to solutions that actually make false peace. We often turn to the deeply ingrained ways of making false peace that we inherently learn from our families of origin. How did your family of origin handle conflict? Uh, maybe you come from a family that tries to handle conflict by avoiding it, right? By not talking about it, sweeping it under the rug and pretending like everything is fine. Or maybe you come from the exact opposite sort of family, where when there's conflict, there's yelling, there's screaming, everybody's angry, and then everybody just blows up over conflict. And likely, you respond to conflict in a very similar way as your family. 
in their course on Emotionally Healthy Relationships uh, by Pete and Jerry Scazzaro. A very good course, highly recommend it. They give some of the most common ways that we respond to conflict or so poorly handle conflict. Uh, here's some of those ways uh, we respond to conflict with lecturing, with blaming, attacking, with condescension, threatening gestures, or the silent treatment. Any of you silent treatment people out there, uh, you probably wouldn't say even if you were because, you know, silence. Name-calling, criticizing, sarcasm, complaining, denying, walking away, placating or avoiding, shouting, using the words always or you never Anger, rage, passive-aggressive behavior, showing contempt and disrespect, lying, hitting, and even violence. Now, unfortunately, I can relate to some of those ways of handling conflict. Uh, sarcasm and, and placating are probably just a few of my go-tos, but you probably have a few from that list that you identify with as well. And here's the thing about me. I don't love conflict. I know some of you weirdos out there might, but I do not. And here's the unfortunate part for me. Ministry is conflict. They don't tell you that in Bible college, probably for good reason, because they'd have a lot less pastors, but ministry is conflict. That is just the reality of it. Uh, whether it's stuff with the building renovation, uh, things being delayed, or doctrinal disputes, or COVID mandates, ministry is conflict. And I'm sure that in your life, in your job, you probably have more conflict than you'd like to have as well. Conflict, maybe at your job, between you and your coworker, conflict with a friend, conflict with a family member. So conflict is not only out there or in the church. It is within us. It's in our own lives. And so there is a greater need for peace now than ever before in our lifetimes. How do we make peace in such a time as this? How do we go about making peace, not as the world does, but in the way of the kingdom of God? Thankfully, scripture has a lot to say about peace. In fact, there's over 400 references to peace in the scriptures. Peace is one of the central themes of the scriptures. And thankfully, Jesus himself has a lot to say about the subject. And so peacemaking, that's what we're going to be delving into today. Peacemaking, what is it and what is it not? Uh, how do we do it? And lastly, why did we do it? So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. as where we're going to be today. Before we dive into our passage, let me just set the scene, give you a little bit of context for what is going on before Jesus preaches his Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he's been going around Galilee. This is the beginning of his ministry. He's teaching. He's healing. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Hundreds and even thousands of people are coming to him daily, both Jews and Gentiles, uh, to, to be healed, to hear his teaching and his preaching, his fame is spreading like wildfire. And then he goes up on a hillside and preaches the most famous sermon ever preached in human history, the Sermon on the Mount. And I actually got to go to this spot several years ago and see where Jesus preached this sermon in Capernaum near the shores of the Sea of Galilee. It is truly like a natural amphitheater. You can hear from so many different areas. And the sermon that Jesus preaches here is his great manifesto for life in the kingdom of heaven. This is about what characterizes those who live and operate in God's kingdom. So this is what he says, Matthew 5, 1 through 9, the Beatitudes. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So this word peacemaker, blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, in the Greek, this is a compound word, irene poios. Uh, irene meaning peace, poios meaning a doer, a creator, a maker. So a maker of peace, a reconciler. Uh, this is a rare word. It's actually used only one time right here in the New Testament. And when we hear that word peace, peacemaker, we often think of an absence of conflict or inner tranquility, which kind of sounds like the name of some yoga studio, but that's actually a modern and shallow rendering for the term peace. Uh, the biblical definition of peace is actually much fuller, much richer than our modern day definitions. This word peace, irene in the Greek, it is actually a Greek equivalent for the Hebrew word shalom. And I'm sure you've probably heard that word before. Shalom refers not only to inner tranquility, not only freedom from conflict, but refers to a state of wholeness and completeness where everything and everyone is existing and living in perfect harmony. Now, what does that sound like to you? That kind of sounds like the Garden of Eden, right? Echoing back to how things originally were and also looking ahead to the new heavens and the new earth where shalom will be truly everywhere. And we look forward to that day. Tim Keller defines shalom, Irene, peace in this way. He says, shalom experienced is multidimensional, complete well-being, physical, psychological, social, and spiritual. It flows from all of one's relationships being put right with God, within oneself, and with others. And so as citizens of heavens, we are called to be makers of shalom, makers of irony, makers of peace. Blessed are the shalom makers. Blessed are the peacemakers. And that's Jesus's beatitude on the peacemakers. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to give us five cultural beatitudes, okay? Five false beatitudes, five beatitudes that Jesus did not say. Okay, here's number one. Blessed are the peaceful. Now, I think this is what we often think of when we hear that word peacemaker, blessed are the peacemakers. We think of someone who is peaceful, having an inner state of peace. You know, this is not just feeling good about yourself. This is not just uh, being peaceful within. This is actually a relational term. To be a peacemaker has to do with making peace with other people. And so being a peacemaker might start with being peaceful, but it can't stop there. Number two, blessed are the nice. I call this Mr. Rogers Christianity. Now, don't get me wrong. I absolutely love Mr. Rogers. I grew up on Mr. Rogers. When that Mr. Rogers movie came out a few years ago, I definitely cried. I'm going to admit it straight up. But Mr. Rogers Christianity is when people think, you know, if I'm just nice then I'm being a good Christian. If I'm just nice, then I'm doing a good job. But in reality, niceness often turns into placating or avoiding 
conflict. When in reality, Jesus was not afraid to enter into conflict or even to create conflict when needed, which doesn't seem very nice of Jesus, right? What did Jesus do when he saw the money changers in the temple selling animals in the temple? What did he do? He flipped the tables. He went over to their money bags and he dumped them out. In John chapter 6, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, he tells them, they come looking for him. And they're like, where are you, Jesus? And, he come, and they come to him and he tells them, listen, you're just looking, to, to come, you're just looking for me so that you can get bread. Because you ate your fill and now you want to get fed again. And then after that, he says, drink my blood, eat my flesh. This is the bread of life. And his disciples say, this is, this is a hard saying. Who can even listen to this, hear this? And then Jesus says to them this line, do you take offense at this? And so Jesus is not afraid to be not nice, right? He's not afraid to enter into conflict because being nice is not a bad thing. But peacemaking requires much more than this. Number three, cultural beatitude. Blessed are the tolerant. Hey, coexist. No, you do you, man. Live and and let live. These are some of the cultural beatitudes of our time. But peacemaking requires more than tolerance. A Pete Scazzaro in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality says, true peace will never come by pretending what is wrong is right. And so if you want to create kingdom change and kingdom peace, you're going to have to go beyond tolerance and tolerating what is clearly wrong. Number four, blessed are the appeasers or blessed are the peacekeepers, those who placate. Appeasing is all about avoiding conflict, not talking about it, sweeping things under the rug, pretending like everything is fine. And this one probably defines me best. I don't like conflict, and I probably identify with this cultural beatitude. But at best, what does this do? This only stalls conflict, right? That's only what this does. At worst, here's what it does. It creates deep-seated hostility and bitterness within one's own heart. Blessed are the appeasers. And lastly, number five, blessed are those who make peace through violence. In Jesus' day, there was something called the Pax Romana, which means Roman peace. Uh, From the reign of Caesar Augustus in 27 BC to the reign of Marcus Aurelius in AD 180, there was about a 200-year reign of so-called peace in the Roman Empire. But this was peace through violence. Uh, As long as you didn't upset the status quo, then you could remain in peace. Uh, But as soon as you stepped out of the bounds in the eyes of Rome, peace had to be restored through violence. Uh, In 4 BC, after the uh, death of King Herod, Rome crucified 2,000 Jewish men in one day who had risen up in rebellion. Uh, Later in AD 66, uh, before the fall of Jerusalem, over 3,500 Jewish people were killed after an uprising against Rome. And so there's keeping of peace, but it's through violence. Uh, Rome made peace through violence, and what did they do? They put their stamp of blessing upon it. Blessed are those who make peace through violence. And yet this was not only what the Romans believed, this is also what the Jewish people believed in Jesus' day. 
that peace had to come through violence. The Jews in Jesus' day were expecting a Messiah to come that would be a military leader, that would expel Rome through winning a war and giving national independence once again to Israel. That's what they thought this Messiah was going to be like, a military leader. And we might think that's like insane of them, outlandish of them to think that that was even possible, that this little nation state of Israel could kick out an empire like Rome. But actually, it's not that crazy because only a century or so before this time in the 160s BC was the Maccabean Revolution, where Jews surprisingly overthrew the Seleucid Empire and expelled them from Israel. And the Seleucid Empire was a part of the Greek Empire that Alexander the Great had established. And so the Jews in Jesus' day thought, hey, if we did it before, we could do it again, right? And in fact, there was a particular Jewish sect that was devoted to this. They were called the Zealots, or also the Sicarii. The Sicarii uh, was the name for this dagger, this knife that they would hide in their cloaks to kill Romans. They were devoted to overthrowing Rome and bringing peace to Israel through violence. Now, did you know that one of Jesus' very own disciples was actually part of this Jewish sect? And his name in the Gospels is Simon the Zealot. And so if you're in the mind of Simon the Zealot, as Jesus is preaching this sermon and he gets to this beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, Simon the Zealot's probably thinking, what? Jesus, what are you talking about? You some kind of hippie? No, we got to expel these Romans through violence, right? And this cultural beatitude of making peace through violence, it is, it's alive and well in our own culture, in our own country, in our own world today. It wasn't just then. It is now as well. We're still trying to achieve peace through violence. We're still trying to Pax Romana our way through the world. But that is not the way of the kingdom, right? The way of the kingdom is the complete opposite of the way of the world. When it comes to the way of the kingdom, uh, we make peace by humbly engaging conflict. Well, the way of the world is to tolerate or to appease or to avoid conflict. Uh, The way of the kingdom is to make peace by loving your enemies. At the end of this chapter, Matthew 5, uh, Jesus says, love your enemies. This was one of the most countercultural and is one of the most countercultural verses in the entire Bible. Love your enemies. That is the way that we make peace. While the way of the world is to shame, to cancel, or even kill your enemies, right? Uh, The way of the kingdom is to make peace by returning evil with good. While the way of the world is to return evil with evil. Tit for tat, punch for punch, eye for an eye, fighting fire with fire. And the way of the kingdom is to make peace by prioritizing relationships, which is what God is about, while the way of the world is simply valuing results. Pete Scazzaro, again, we all learn sooner or later, he says, that we can't build Christ's kingdom on false peace and pretense. Only the truth will do. And those are five cultural beatitudes, things that Jesus did not say. And these things are the way of peace, uh, true peacemaking in the way of the kingdom. And so now that we've looked at this term, peacemaking, irene, shalom, now that we know what peacemaking is and what it is not, the question is, how do we do it? How do we actually make peace? 
Well, two forms of peacemaking primarily show up. The first one is mediation. The second one is reconciliation. Let me start with mediation. What is it? Mediation is about uniting people who are divided. Man, couldn't we use more people like that in our world today, in our country today, in our churches today? People who bring together those who are divided. Mediation is about helping uh, two parties or two people reconcile two parties that were once at odds with each other or enemies with each other and helping them to reconcile. Think about Jesus. He, no one was better at mediating conflict than Jesus himself. Think about the 12. Think about a few specifically of the disciples who were within that 12. Number one, you got Simon the Zealot, who we've already talked about. And then you have the polar opposite, Matthew the tax collector. Now, Matthew, the tax collector, would have been seen not only by Simon the Zealot, but also by the rest of the Jewish people as a complete traitor to his country. Uh, He was taking the money of Jewish people and giving it to the Romans and pocketing a little bit for himself. He was like an IRS agent for Rome to the Jews. And so they saw him as a traitor. And you know, do you know what the Zealots did to people like Matthew? They killed them. They Sakari, they stabbed them, right? And so Jesus brings these two men together in his inner circle, in the 12. He mediates between them. He makes peace between these parties, these two parties that were certainly once enemies. And he uses them to start the church. Furthermore, Christ Jesus made peace between two polar opposite uh, people groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, In Ephesians 2, 14 through 18, this is what Paul says about what Christ did for us. He says, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of the law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews, and Gentiles, by creating in himself one new people from the two groups, together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility towards each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace, gospel of peace, to you Gentiles who were far away from him, and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. And Jesus always has been, always will be the true peacemaker. And what did it cost him? In this passage, we see it cost him his life, right? He mediated, made peace between two polar opposite groups of people through the cross. And making peace through mediation often costs us something as well. In the 13th century, there was a man named St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, You might have heard of him before. Uh, He was a monk, and he was certainly a peacemaker. During the Fifth Crusade, uh, St. Francis went to Egypt, where the war had been raging on for over a year, and it was a war between Christians and Muslims, and it was a bloodbath. And during one of the ceasefires, St. Francis took one of his friars and they crossed over enemy lines to try to go and talk to the sultan, the king of Egypt. 
And so they get captured, they get brought to the sultan himself, and he asks the sultan, he begs the sultan to make peace. And Francis, what he does is he begins sharing the gospel of peace with the sultan himself, who is a Muslim. And the sultan is blown away by this guy's theology, by what he's talking about as Jesus, the peacemaker. And the sultan is so impressed with St. Francis uh, that he even offers him land and riches within his own kingdom. Now, St. Francis earlier in his life had already taken a vow of poverty, so he politely declines the land and the riches. And what he asks the king for, the sultan for, is to come to Christ, to give his life to Jesus. Now, some sources say that the sultan did make a deathbed conversion to Christ, but either way, St. Francis was willing to risk his own life, cross enemy lines for the sake of making peace, for the sake of spreading the gospel of peace. Now, you might not have to mediate between a war between two nations, right? But you may have to mediate a meeting at the office. Uh, you may have to mediate and make peace between your coworkers around the conference table on a Sunday or on a Monday afternoon. You may have to mediate a fight between your kids, and by May, you definitely will. You may have to mediate a dispute between your neighbors. You may have to make peace between two of your friends or two of your family members because you know you're going to see them at the next family reunion. You don't want that to be awkward. You are called to be a mediator. Now, let's get practical for a second for what it means to be a peacemaker in the way of mediation. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, to be a peacemaker, you must be absolutely neutral, right? you got to be neutral so that you can bring the two sides together. You must not be sensitive. You must not be touchy. You must not be on the defensive. You must not be a millennial. No, just kidding. If you are, you will not be a very good peacemaker, he says. So to be a peacemaker, you got to be neutral. you got to be impartial. you got to be sincere. To be a good mediator and peacemaker, you must be peaceable. That is, you must not be argumentative or divisive. You must be gentle. You must be merciful. You must be wise and reasonable. Now, where am I getting this? Check out what James says in James 3, verses 17 through 18, in this verse that he ends it with, so beautiful. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That is our kingdom calling. We are to make peace. And when we do, we will see a harvest of righteousness begin to unfold in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. And so that's part one. How to be a peacemaker is mediation. Part two is reconciliation. Reconciliation is the restoring and the repairing of broken relationships. This is more a one-on-one. This is more you and someone else who needs to reconcile. So how do you go about reconciliation? It's simple, but it's difficult. Number one, ask for forgiveness. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, this is what Jesus has to say about asking for forgiveness. 
He says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, right? So you've apparently wronged your brother. Your brother has something against you. Then leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So apparently Jesus would rather have you leave worship and go reconcile with your brother, with your sister, than to stay at worship. It's pretty, pretty wild, right? And remember, the emphasis here is on asking for forgiveness. And this is going to require you to humble yourself, to admit you're wrong, and to ask for forgiveness. Ken Sandy and Kevin Johnson, in Resolving Everyday Conflicts, say this, If I'm only 2% responsible for conflict, I'm 100% responsible for that 2%. So even if you feel like you've only done a little bit of the wrong, you still need to go and to ask for forgiveness. So that's step one, ask for forgiveness. Step two is to forgive. Uh, Later in the Sermon on the Mount, again, Jesus says this about forgiveness. This is right after the Lord's prayer when he says, forgive us our debts. Uh, He says, Matthew 6, 14 through 15, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Apparently, Jesus is also quite serious about forgiveness. And the reality is that when we withhold forgiveness, we're actually punishing ourselves. We're actually hurting ourselves. When we withhold forgiveness, we're thinking, oh, we're punishing that other person. But it's actually us who is carrying the burden of unforgiveness on our shoulders. And man, there was a period of time where I I held that, that burden of unforgiveness on my shoulders for about a period of two years. And it was weighty and it made me bitter. And then when I actually had a reconciliatory conversation that went way better than I thought it would go, that was immediately lifted. Don't punish yourself and don't try to punish others with withholding forgiveness. Forgive today. It's what we're called to do. In 1994, there was a civil war that broke out in the country of Rwanda. And it led, unfortunately, to a mass genocide. In just about 100 days, there was almost 1 million people killed, murdered, and raped. Many of the victims were killed in their own villages by their own neighbors. It was an extremely tragic and horrific event. How does a country come back from something like that, from something so horrific and so tragic? In 2014, on the 20th year after the genocide, the New York Times put together this series of unthinkable photos called Portraits of reconciliation. I'll show you a photo here. Each of these photos showed two people, a victim and a perpetrator. And these people had reconciled. This picture of this man, the man in this picture says, my conscience was not quiet. And when I would see her, I was very ashamed. 
After being trained about unity and reconciliation, I went to her house and I asked for forgiveness. And then I shook her hand. And so far, we are on good terms. And that woman in the picture says, he killed my father and three brothers. He did these killings with other people, but he came alone to me and he asked for pardon. He and a group of other offenders who had been in prison helped me build a house with a covered roof. I was afraid of him. Now I have granted him pardon. Things have become normal. And in my mind, I feel clear. There's even something that they did that they've been doing for almost two decades now um, called Reconciliation Villages, where perpetrators and victims actually uh, live uh, purposefully, them and their families, in the same village, living and working together, reconciled. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine putting yourself in that scenario? How can such forgiveness and reconciliation even take place? And yet it has. Now, those are extreme examples, right? But doesn't that kind of put into perspective our little disagreements, our squabbles, the little things that have separated us that we need to reconcile over? Let's get practical for a moment. Let me give you a practical guide to reconciliation. This is from Pete Scazzaro, his five steps to conflict resolution. If you need to reconcile with someone, here's a good way to start. Number one, ask for permission uh, to have this conversation and state the problem. You know, I noticed that blank, right? Share why it's important to you. I value this. I value us. Uh, Share your feelings. When you do this, I feel this. State your request clearly, respectfully, and specifically. I'd like to ask that you do this or stop this. And then lastly, let the other person either agree to your request or offer an alternative and then come to a mutual agreement. Five easy steps. If you just took those steps, I guarantee you that you would have at least some forward movement with reconciliation. Now, it's not always possible. People, some people just don't want to budge, don't want to move, but you are responsible for your part. Paul says, live peaceably with all as far as it depends on you. You gotta do your part of reconciliation. So far, we've covered what peacemaking is and what it is not, right? So far, we've covered how do you make peace, right? Through mediation and reconciliation. And lastly, why do we make peace? Matthew 5, 9, again, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, daughters of God, children of God. So why are peacemakers called sons or daughters or children of God? Because God himself is a peacemaker. Uh, Romans 15, 33 says, may the God of peace be with you all. 1 Corinthians 14, 33, God is not a God of confusion, but of Peace, Philippians 4, 9, the God of peace will be with you. So why be a peacemaker? Because God himself is a peacemaker. He is the God of peace. Not only that, but he has specifically made peace with who? With you. Colossians 1, 20, for in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile 
to himself all things, whether on, he- whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so through the cross of Christ, God has made peace with you. God has sacrificed everything, even his own son, to make peace with you. So why be a peacemaker? Because God himself is the ultimate peacemaker, and he has made peace with you. And that's really our main point for today. As a child of God, make peace like God. As a child of God, make peace like God. Make peace like God by mediating, by reconciling, by forgiving, by asking for forgiveness. As a child of God, make peace like God. And maybe you're watching this or listening to this today and you've yet to become a child of God. You've yet to receive the peace with God. And I can tell you that today is the day of salvation. You can give your life to Jesus. You can become a child of God. You can experience peace with God. And you can become a peacemaker by giving your life to him. So as we conclude, let me just give you five short practices for peacemaking. We've already talked so practically about peacemaking, but let me just give you five short practices here at the end. Number one, spend time with the God of peace. Uh, The best activists are those who are the contemplatives, those who live a prayerful life. Those are the ones who are best at making peace because they spend time with the God of peace, receiving peace from him, knowing how to make peace because they spend time in the word and in prayer with the God of peace knowing then how to be a person of peace. Spend time with the God of peace. Number two, be open to mediating uh, and reconciling between others. Uh, Maybe there's somebody in your life, two people in your life, who they, they need to be reconciled. And maybe you need to ask God, do you want me, Lord, to, to mediate this situation? Or maybe it's just a, a quiet prayer at work around the conference table. God, what What can I do in this situation to bring peace? What can I do with my neighbors to bring peace between these people? What can I do with my family members, my friends, to to help make peace between them? Be open to mediating reconciliation between others. Number three, humble yourself and ask for forgiveness. It's a hard thing to do, but it's what we're called to do, as Jesus said. And then number four, maybe even harder, but just as necessary, choose to forgive. This is a choice you have, your own will, and you need to decide, are you going to do it? Are you going to follow Christ and what he says that you need to do, which is to forgive? I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying it's the right thing to do, and it's the best thing for you and for the other people. Choose to forgive. And lastly, Share the gospel of peace. Ultimately, what people need is peace with God. And from that, they can then make peace with others. You have the gospel message of peace, and so share it with others. Let me end with this quote from Grant Osborne, who says, the supreme peacemaking is the proclamation of the gospel. And so as a child of God, make peace like God, and go forth and share the gospel of peace. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you 
and helps you follow Jesus with everything.